Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer, following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Jari, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow certified StoryGrid editors, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, Leslie Watts, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us proposes a favorite movie that we think is a great example of a key story principle. That editor has to make the case for their position with the help of a partner, while two of us play devil's advocate to check the validity of the proposition. This week, Valerie pitched Get Out as a great example of narrative drive. This 2017 horror film was directed by Jordan Peele from a screenplay by Jordan Peele of Key and Peele fame. Valerie will be ably assisted on the A team by Anne. Kim and Leslie will be on the B team. They're going to test the theory by evaluating it separately and from other perspectives. So then in the end, we get a complete 360 degree view of the story principle of narrative drive. Valerie will start us off with the genre and a quick one sentence summary of the beginning hook middle build, and ending payoff to orient us to the story. Valerie, take it away. Thanks, Jari. Okay, first thing I have to say, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. We're all going to be talking about this story as though you all have seen it. So if you haven't and you want to, you might want to pause now and go watch it and then come back. Or just live with the spoilers. So this is a horror story, as Jari said, and the subgenre is uncanny. In the beginning hook, when Chris goes to visit his girlfriend's parents' house for the weekend, he must accept their racist behavior or else jeopardize his relationship with the woman he loves. He decides that, in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big a deal and even allays Rose's concerns about it. In the middle build, when Chris gets hypnotized, he must learn to regain control of his mind or fall victim to the Armitage family. He fails to overcome Missy's power of suggestion and is taken prisoner. And in the ending payoff, when Chris regains consciousness and realizes he's trapped, he must find a way to escape or suffer a fate worse than death, which is a lifetime in the sunken place, and you must have a fate worse than death in a horror. And he outsmarts his antagonist by putting cotton in his ears and escapes the Armitage household. Thanks, Valerie. That was a great summary. I mean, I'm, I'm not a horror fan. I never liked horror films, but I'm a big uh, Jordan Peele fan of, of Key and Peele. I just love those guys. And uh, this, even for, for me, who does not appreciate horror films at all, I really, <laughs> I really liked it. And I'm glad that you picked it because it is one I wanted to see. And honestly, I would never have seen this movie unless you picked it. So... I'm really looking forward to the discussion because I'm completely out of my element in terms of horror, but this narrative drive thing is something that's uh, I'm you know working on a a memoir and and a novel right now, and I need to figure this out <laughs> as well. So I'm really curious. So, Valerie, why don't you take it away and teach me? Please teach me how this is supposed to work. I'll do my best. Thank you so okay. much. <laughs> Okay, so I guess the first thing we need to do is review what it means when we say narrative drive. Okay, this all has to do with how much information the writer is sharing with the reader. And remember, the reader wants to solve a puzzle. It started with industry insiders, and they use the term narrative drive to describe why they liked a book. And uh, Sean gave us the example that you know he would use when he was pitching a book, the narrative drive is off the charts. And by that, he would mean that the story effectively grabbed his attention and held it all the way through the end. So enter Robert McKee, as usual. <laughs> and he was really interested in this concept and what it is that keeps someone curious about a story and keeps them with it all the way to the end. And he said that there are three ways to create this narrative drive that he called it. And that is dramatic irony, mystery, and suspense. So dramatic irony is when the viewer or reader knows more than the character. Mystery is when the character knows more than the viewer or reader. And suspense is when the viewer or reader and the character have the same amount of information. All right. Now, in horror movies, uh, other movies too, but primarily horror movies, we have moments of surprise. 
For example, a jack-in-the-box type of jump scare. They definitely keep the audience engaged in the story. So when I was analyzing this film, I thought, okay, well, what do we do with that? I'm calling surprises the little buddy of suspense because the audience and the protagonist both have the same amount of information and are both startled. Now, in saying that, jump scares don't translate well to the written page, but that doesn't mean that surprise doesn't work as a form of narrative drive in a novel. I'm developing a working hypothesis about this. Now, mind you, I'm still testing it, okay? I've only been looking at it for a week. So don't be confused if you hear me in the future talk about it a bit differently than I'm going to talk about it now. But as of today, here's what I'm thinking. In novel form, surprises are major turning points, either active or revelatory. For example, in Get Out, the deer is a jump scare, no doubt about that. And while that scene could certainly be in a novel, it's not going to work the same way. It just won't. I don't think jump scares work well in, in print, although maybe there's an example out there that I just haven't come across yet. But at the end of the film, when Chris jumps out of his chair in the third act, that would be represented as an active turning point in novel form. And when he pulls the cotton out of his ears, that's a revelatory turning point. In the movie, these moments are accented with music, but in the novel, to give these moments maximum impact and to make them surprising, they have to be set up properly. Another example for a revelatory turning point that's kind of surprising is at the end of the movie when we realize that Georgina is actually grandma and the groundskeeper, whose name I just forget right now, is the grandfather. So in terms of the setting up and paying off business, I'm going to refer you once again, to Anne's excellent Fundamental Fridays article on setups and payoffs. And I'll have a link to that again in the show notes. Hey, Valerie, I have a quick question on the point about surprise and narrative drive. Okay. So when I think about narrative drive, it seems to be something that's forward looking. It's shaped by questions that arise in the mind of the reader or viewer that keeps them engaged and interested and moving from the beginning to the end. But when we think of surprise, it seems to be something that is backward looking, you know, revelatory and action turning points cause us to rethink everything that we've seen so far in, in the story and creates kind of a new lay of the land. So I'm wondering how surprise relates to narrative drive. Could you talk about that for a moment? Yeah. Honestly, I hadn't really thought of narrative drive that is kind of forward-looking or ahead of the reader pulling them forward, I see narrative drive as tools that we have that allow us to grab the reader's attention and keep them wondering what's going on. And surprises will do that, of course. They're like little jolts of adrenaline. You know, so the jump scare, for example, that's a jolt of adren adrenaline, or it's moments where we get a new piece of information that makes us sit up and take notice. You know, it makes us when we're reading a book, go, oh, okay, now I see what's happening. Well, I didn't, all right, now what does this mean? Now what's the protagonist going to do? Now, you know, in saying that, I am literally starting to study this for the first time. Just as I came to prepare for today's podcast and I was faced with the jump scare and I thought, well, what does a writer, a novelist do with that? Is there some sort of equivalent that we would use when writing a novel. And I don't have the answers. In fact, I'm at the point of gathering a list of questions <laughs> to go in search of answers for. <laughs> so um, I'm going to keep that in mind and as I continue my study of this and um, see, see what I can come up with, because that's a different way of looking at it than I had. Thanks, Leslie. Okay, moving on. So why does a writer care about narrative drive? Um, what do you need to know this? Again, I go back to the puzzle idea. Readers want a puzzle that they can't solve. They keep reading in an effort to solve the puzzle before the end of the book, right? That's what they want to do. But they really are hoping and praying that the author is smarter than them, that the author will give them an ending that is surprising but inevitable. So it's almost like a game, in my opinion, between the reader and the writer. One is trying to outsmart the other. But even though they might not articulate it this way, 
the reader does not want to win that game because as soon as the reader guesses what the ending is, that's it. They're out. They put the book down, they turn off the movie and they're done. So puzzle solving is all about having the right information at the right time. Narrative drive is how you parcel out that information. And it's just one way to keep a reader interested in your story. And in this podcast, we've talked about a number of them, like raising the stakes is another one, for example. Yeah, when you fail to keep the reader interested because they can see what's coming, it's really like all the air goes out of it. It just flops. It's no longer interesting. And sometimes you can get them back, but you always take a chance of just losing them. There's so much to read and watch out there that it's easier to just quit and find something else than to keep pushing through this one sort of dull, floppy moment. So this is worth studying. The third question we ask about our story principles is how does a writer use this concept to create a great story in a perfect world? Um, (laughs) Valerie, you added that phrase, in a perfect world. (laughs) I love it. It's so Valerie. (laughs) I think all good stories make use of all three forms of narrative drive, but I think which one you favor is probably best determined by your global genre. And again, here's this is a working hypothesis and one that I have not yet dug deeply into, but I think horror can probably, I think you're going to cover this, Valerie, can probably be favored for suspense and rely fairly heavily on suspense. And in a past episode, when we talked about Carrie, you talked about how too much dramatic irony kind of ruined the horror because there wasn't enough suspense. And you can have all three, but you definitely want to favor one over another. So crime, not surprisingly, depends on mystery. And let's think about why for a minute, because why do we read crime stories? for the puzzle, as Valerie was just saying, yes, but also because it's a little bit deeper level, crime stories turn on justice and injustice. And we read them, at least in part, I think, at least why I read them or watch them, is to feel like there are good people out there, cops or investigators or whatever, who are solving crime and maintaining social order. So to me, Mystery is when the character knows more than we do. And what's more, it's it's really reassuring to have a detective or investigator one step ahead of me in solving a crime. It's, It's part of the reason why I like a crime story. Mystery is when somebody in the story knows more than I do. So by the same token, those of us who do enjoy and watch horror stories or read them, we do that to experience the thrill of, you know, sort of fear and terror in the face of some horrible monster without actually endangering ourselves, right? So nothing's going to bring that sensation closer than moving along step by step with the victim or the protagonist as the monster, you know, is slowly revealed. That we will experience the thrills because we're in suspense. We are right there where the character is. So as far as dramatic irony goes, and this is where I get really speculative, it would seem to me to be the narrative drive form best suited to the internal genres. Because we read and watch internal genre stories in order to feel some kind of relief or satisfaction when the protagonist gets what they deserve, whether that's good or bad. And there's no better way to feel that than to be one, to feel like we're one step ahead of the protagonist, um, understanding a little more than they do and feel like we're already at the finish line, either rooting for them to win or hoping that they get their just desserts. So, Narrative drive and point of view are really, really tightly twined together. It's a subject for another whole you know, book. But keep in mind that when you leave the protagonist's point of view, you will tend to create dramatic irony. And when you stay strictly within it, you will create suspense. Remember when we did Waking the Divine and I opened up the whole can of worms about the power of 10 and progressive complications? Yes. Well, <laughs> um, I've kind of done the same thing this week. In, I mean, this is... this. Exploration of narrative drive does feel a little bit like a Pandora's box, and um, there's a lot to talk about this. So moving forward for the rest of the podcast, when I analyze the film, I'll be kind of touching on the highlights. But I've got a series of Fundamental Fridays articles where I'm going to continue studying narrative drive and giving examples and seeing how it works. So watch your inboxes for more information on that. Now, to Get Out. Why did I pitch Get Out as a good example of narrative drive? Well, because it is. (laughs) It is primarily suspense, although there are moments of mystery and dramatic irony. The first thing that I need to talk about uh, when analyzing narrative drive in a story is that I think it's probably best done at the 
level of sequence or act. When I tried to do it on a scene by scene level, uh, I nearly lost my mind. It was just too, it was too micro. And I don't think that that was necessarily helpful to see how the drive was working on the macro level, because narrative drive is more of a macro tool. And Jordan Peele, of course, is also keenly attuned to narrative drive. And this is something that I learned when I listened to the director's uh, explanation, not the director's cut, but you know, the director's commentary. I watched that and I really got a sense of how concerned he was with mystery, dramatic irony, and suspense, although he didn't use that language. That's exactly what he was talking about. So although Get Out, it primarily uses suspense, there are moments of dramatic irony and mystery, but they're woven in. He uses them as accents. And there aren't hard breaks between the three types of narrative drive, but instead they're ebbing and flowing with one another, which is fascinating to me. And I think that's such a big factor we need to take into account when, with almost all the story grid principles, right? A well-written story will have these organic ebbs and flows. The boundaries are fluid, not just from one form of narrative drive to the next, but in things like, say, progressive complications or whether a character's crisis decision is on the page or in subtext, things like that. We say it a lot around here and it can't be repeated often enough. It's squishy. So pulling back to the macro level to get an overview like you did, Valerie, with this movie and, and to be able to say confidently that this movie relies mostly on suspense or this story relies mostly on dramatic irony or whatever, that's a skill that we've developed, all of us on the podcast here, through analyzing a whole lot of stories. And I just want to beat the drum one more time. The best thing a writer can do to understand story structure is analyze a lot of stories. Oh, I second that. Here, here. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so let's look at the highlights of Get Out. The movie starts with a teaser, and this is when Andre is abducted, and it's, it starts the story with dramatic irony, ironically enough. <laughs> the audience knows that Andre has been abducted, but Chris doesn't. When act one finally kicks in, it's still in dramatic irony. While Chris suspects that Rose's family might have a problem with his being black, or at least might be caught off guard by it. We know that there's something afoot. We know that there is danger in the air because we've just watched Andre get yanked off the street. And all, but we don't know exactly what's going on. Chris only suspects that something might not be cool. He does technically express concern for life and limb. I mean, he says to Rose, I don't want to get chased off the lawn with a shotgun. But he doesn't really think that his life is in danger. If he did, he wouldn't go on the trip. Now, of course, he actually does get chased off the lawn with a shotgun, and it's Rose who does it. But, you know, if he really thought his life was in danger, he wouldn't go. Now, once we're at the house and we see how Missy and Dean treat him, we slip back into suspense. Rose clearly has Chris's back, right? <laughs> right? Although the Armitages are definitely strange. Yep, they're totally strange. We don't have any more information than Chris does. He knows there's, they're just a weird bunch of people, and we know they're a weird bunch of people, but that's all we know. By the end of Act One, we've taken our cue from Chris, actually. Yep, they're racist. Even Rose admits to that, and she's embarrassed by it. But the racism is expressed as awkwardness, not hatred. And in the director's commentary, Peel said that for a Black person in an all-white environment, this is actually a best-case scenario. When we go into Act Two, Chris is aware that he's being hypnotized while it's happening, but then he forgets. So there is a brief moment of dramatic irony, but it is brief. Chris catches back up with us really quickly. When he wants a cigarette, he realizes that the thought of it makes him sick, and he knows he was hypnotized. And the, the groundskeeper also says to him that you were in with Mrs. Armitage for a really long time last night. The dramatic irony is used here to heighten the tension. The fact that Chris figures it out quickly demonstrates that he's a smart guy. He's alert. He's paying attention to what's going on around him. If he were in danger, he would have a chance of surviving. Again, this use of dramatic irony uh, moves the story forward and sets up a future payoff. 
Now we'll look at the party sequence. This is pure suspense. Neither Chris nor the audience has a clue what's going on until Andre, who is now Logan, turns around. And we recognize that this is the guy from the teaser, the guy who was yanked off the street. Although at first, again, in the commentary, I admit when I watched it first, he is presented so differently that it did take me a minute to realize that it was the guy from the teaser. The actor does such an amazing job. Everything about him is different. I mean, he, he definitely plays and <laughs> he plays the old white guy brain, you know, I mean, the oh, way he dresses man. and the whole way he says he can't, doesn't do the fist bump and everything. It's one of the like, creepiest things I've ever seen in a movie. Gilmore, man. They were asking me about the African-American experience. Maybe you could take this one. Oh, well, well, I find that the African-American experience for me has been, for the most part, very good. Although I find it difficult to go into detail as I haven't had much desire to leave the house in a while. (laughs) (laughs) We've become such homebodies. Yes, yes, yes. But even when you go into the city, I've just had no interest. The chores have become my sanctuary. So even if you don't get instantly that this is the guy who was yanked off the street, you know something's weird. The weirdness factor gets turned up. And when the flashlight does go off, and he changes back to Andre. Yeah. If there was any doubt on your mo- in your mind who this guy is, you know then, because it's totally Andre from the beginning. All right. Well, so the effect of all this on the audience is the same effect that it has on Chris. More questions are being raised. Okay, so now we're caught up, right? We know it's a guy who's been abducted, but we don't know who he is. We don't know why he's there. We don't know what's going on. Everything is weird. And for Chris, everything is weird. Now, right after this, Rod actually tells us exactly what's happening, but it just sounds too wild to be true. And because of the source of information, I mean, Rod's the comic relief character, right? Even though we've been told, we don't believe it. And what's more, Rod doesn't even really believe it. He's just kind of mouthing off and coming up with a wild idea, which happens to be right. The the comic relief, I think, is an element in most horror stories that you need to relieve some of the tension and that the, the guy playing Rod, and I'm sorry, I have not noted down the actor's name was just absolutely fantastic. I wanted to call out one piece of this story, one scene where the writing takes us from mystery into dramatic irony in the most artful, masterful way. And that's the auction scene. Now this is getting down to the micro level that Valerie, you were talking about where if you start analyzing every scene for this, it's, it becomes mind boggling. But the auction scene is just really vivid. It starts out in not Chris's point of view. That's a key idea here. We are in a scene that Chris is not present in, okay? And we witness it almost purely from sort of a camera or reporter point of view. It's just critical to understand this. All the guests are gathered and they have bingo cards. And it's been announced, oh, we're going to play bingo, right? And Rose's father, Dean, is in front of the, of the group, and they're assembled like an audience. But instead of calling out bingo numbers, he begins silently sort of gesticulating weirdly. And the people in the audience are raising their bingo cards, and we're going, what is going on here? This is so weird. Mystery, right? We do not know. They know. We don't know. So they po- it poses a question that we need to have answered really big in the scene. So just as we begin to realize that what's happening is the guests are, uh, they're bidding on something, right? It's an auction. Just as that realization dawns, the camera pulls back, this is point of view again, and reveals to us what they're bidding on. It's a big photograph of Chris himself. And at that moment, the mystery is solved. Oh my God, they're bidding on Chris. And the dramatic irony begins because now we understand something that Chris hasn't figured out yet. He's there to be sold. So the cutting back and forth in the scene, the scene is intercut with another scene of a private conversation between Chris and Rose. And that intercutting builds our tension as we, and it builds dramatic irony as we realize how much we know and how much, although he's beginning to suspect something, he does not suspect how horrific it is. When we were studying Carrie in season two, I said this, horror stories require suspense. When the reader is in step with the protagonist, he'll be on the edge of his seat, wondering what will happen next. Mystery can work under certain circumstances, but dramatic irony is the doom of horror stories. When the reader knows more than the protagonist, he loses interest very quickly. Now, 
This whole issue with Andre slash Logan is a major turning point in the story. And in fact, it's the midpoint shift. Tension has totally been building and things have been weird. But we understand why Chris is staying in the house. They haven't been so weird that he should leave because, you know, it's a best bad choice, right? This is the big best bad choice he's dealing with. Before this point, if he left, he would have risked the relationship with Rose and he wasn't willing to do that. So it was better for him to stay with these weird people and listen to these racist remarks. So he, he loves Rose. He genuinely does. And he's putting up with this foolishness for her sake. But now things are different. Now he wants to leave. If he didn't want to leave at this point, we as the audience would lose total faith in him. We know he's a smart guy. That's been demonstrated. And staying beyond this point wouldn't make sense. Rose tells Chris that they can leave. So we think, okay, Chris gets to get out of that creepy place and he gets to keep the woman he loves. She is on his side. Rose says that she'll make something up and she'll deal with her parents. So this eases tension in the moment. We think Chris is going to be safe, or at least he has a really good chance of being safe, and he thinks he'll be safe. But remember, we're in dramatic irony here at a major point in the story. And doesn't that go against what I said in Carrie? And doesn't that risk losing the audience's attention? Yeah, totally. It absolutely does. And Jordan Peele knew it. This is what he had to say. And I'm quoting. Chris is suspicious, but is pacified but the audience knows he's in for it. The leaving sequence, and this is the sequence that follows what I just described, is a very tricky moment because you don't want the audience to be so frustrated because we're so far ahead of this character who can't see what's going on. So very quickly, I had to catch him up and not only catch up, but get a step ahead of the audience so we can trust our protagonist again. I mean, that's exactly it. It's exactly it. That's brilliant. So the leaving sequence, Right? I know the guy knows his job (laughs) completely. Master craftsman. So the leaving sequence then is all about suspense and it's all about Rose. And this is what uh, Peel is talking about, that he had to catch Chris up really quickly. So like Chris up to this point, we believe that Rose is in his corner. She is the, the loving girlfriend. And we believe that whatever else was going on at that place, he wasn't alone. Then he finds the pictures in the closet. And this shifts our belief. What we thought we knew doesn't seem to be real anymore. And it shifts Chris's as well. So there's something weird going on, but we don't really know what these pictures are about. We don't know if it proves that Rose is a liar. If she did tell the lie, was it a little white lie? No pun intended. Or is there something more sinister going on here? Now, I'm going to pause for a moment because this idea of the open closet door in the bedroom bothered me the whole movie. And I couldn't figure out why it was open repeatedly and why he either didn't close it or didn't look in it. And here's what Peel had to say about that. Rose is so sick and twisted that she always leaves the door a little bit open just in case her victims want to find the pictures. It's part of the thrill of the hunt to leave that door open for Chris to find the pictures and to suspect her. You know, I thought it was Georgina who left. I just assumed that it was Georgina trying to somehow subconsciously clue him into what was happening. So that's interesting. That wor- that concept worked. Too. Yeah, because she's unplugging his phone, right? Right, right. Um, And I could understand why I'm plugging the phone, because if the battery's dead, he can't call for help, because that's always a problem in horror movies. Like, just call the police. Call for help. Why aren't you calling for help? So modern storytellers have to deal with technology somehow. Okay. Then at the very end of Act 2, when Rose makes up that story about Chris's dog having to go to the vet, and that's why they're going to leave, we're more confused than ever. We don't know. Is she trustworthy? Is she not? She's looking for keys. She can't find them. What's happening? But the second she finds those keys, we know, just like Chris, that he is in deep trouble. Although exactly what kind of trouble, we don't know, but things have shifted. And this is all suspense. Okay, in the third act, it starts with some comic relief because we need it. So this is all about Rod looking for Chris. And this puts us in dramatic irony again, briefly. And 
with a purpose. By showing us that Rod is looking for Chris, it gives us hope and it increases anticipation. Whatever is happening to Chris, will Rod get there first to help him and save him? But when the police laugh at Rod, our hopes are dashed. So then we switch back to the Armitage house and we see Chris tied to the chair. We're back in suspense. We don't know if Rod will track him down, if he's even looking for him. But, you know, Chris is, I'm supposing here, but we can assume, I think it's a safe bet that Chris in that chair is hoping and praying that the one person who knows he's up here will eventually come looking for him if he doesn't show up or doesn't answer his phone. But he doesn't know. The surgery scenes are also suspense. Now, the audience actually sees it unfolding, but Chris is aware of it, right? Because he's already watched that video. In fact, the, vi- the whole point of that video is Peel making sure that the audience and Chris have the same information. So that's his little suspense insurance policy. There is a moment of mystery when we have a close-up of Chris pulling the cotton on the arm of the chair. We know that he has an idea, but we don't know what it is. So again, Jordan Peele is using something other than suspense to increase tension and drive the narrative. And again, it's a relatively brief period because Chris's plan is quickly revealed. And when it is, we're brought back to a state of suspense, right? So Peel is making sure that, ni- that the viewer and Chris are in step. One is not getting too far ahead of the other for very long. So that was, I mean, that's a huge review of narrative drive, but that gives you a bird's eye view of how it's working in Get Out. Thanks, Valerie, for that. Uh, next up, we are going to hear from the B team. So thanks, Valerie and Ann, for, for your analysis. Now we're going to hand it over to Kim and Leslie. Thanks, Jari. So this film is amazing for so many reasons. Uh, And once you've seen it, your mind can't help but replay it and pick out all the subtleties you missed the first time through. Like, oh, that's why she wanted him to quit smoking. It was to preserve his body for the buyer, right? And I didn't even think about that until like yesterday morning. So it's it's a similar uh, way that I felt after I watched The Sixth Sense because, you know, that's something where you don't really understand what's going on until it's all revealed to you at the end. And then you can go back over and think about all these little elements, which was really interesting to me. As I was preparing my notes for the podcast today, it got me to wonder if Get Out is possibly a worldview revelation plot. And then sure enough, when I checked the conventions – it does. It meets all of the conventions of a worldview revelation plot. So we have horror, uncanny, as well as worldview revelation. So I will have those details in the show notes if you want to check it out, if you're on the hunt like I am for additional examples of worldview revelation. Get Out is a is another great example of that. So we're talking about narrative drive. And the key element here is we want to create interest, right? So how do we get the reader or the viewer to, to get interested and then to stay interested? So Robert McKee says this, the task is next to impossible unless the design attracts both sides of human nature, intellect and emotion. So he suggests that we do this by arousing curiosity, which stimulates our intellectual side by posing these questions and opening situations that our mind then tries to answer so it can close it, close that loop. But in order to get those answers, we must continue with the story. So we're driven to stay. And then also on the flip side, by arousing concern, which stimulates our emotional side through empathy and a desire to see these positive values play out like justice or strength or love or courage. We want these to win out and we're concerned that they that they won't, that something is at stake here that we might lose. And, and so we are emotionally invested to, to wait and see what's going to happen. So if we can empathize with the protagonist and have a reason to be concerned, that's what McKee calls the center of good. If that center of good is in danger, then we will also be driven to stay in the story to find out what happens. So curiosity and concern. Curiosity um, invests our intellectual side. Concern invests our emotional side. So then we have the three aspects, mystery, suspense, and dramatic irony. And each one of these is pulling on curiosity or concern in a different way. 
So mystery, as we've said, is when characters have more information than the audience. And this could be the protagonist or the antagonist. And the audience will receive clues. So there'll, there'll be an indication that there's more to know, that there's, you know, some information is being withheld. And that creates this intellectual interest, aka curiosity. So mystery is, is really writing specifically on curiosity. Now, suspense, as we've said, is when the characters have the same amount of information as the audience. And McKee points out that 90% of fiction operates like this, where we're attuned with what the characters experience, and then we know what they know as they come to know it. So suspense is really what we're used to, and this creates both curiosity and this emotional interest of concern. Um, because, you know, there's some things that we don't know, clearly, and the character doesn't know them either. But there's some things that we do know, which raises this level of concern. So we've got both curiosity and concern going on. Now, dramatic irony is when the audience has more information than the characters. So this can be used in a variety of genres. Um, a comedy of errors, for example, where, you know, we know if there's mistaken identity and we know that. And, you know, there's all kinds of things that can go on that are really funny in comedy when we use dramatic irony. Now, Hitchcock was a huge proponent of dramatic irony, and he used it in almost all of his films. So we know that it certainly works in, you know, horror and these kinds of disturbing stories. Specifically, you know, you can think about an example where, you know, we know as the audience where the monster is and the victim doesn't. Maybe we know that the monster went upstairs and, you know, is behind a door and the victim, meanwhile, doesn't and is heading there. You know, that leads us all to inevitably screaming at the TV, don't go in there, don't go in there, don't go up the stairs. We know that something's going on. So dramatic irony operates primarily through concern where we are worried about the protagonist. We're worried about the victim because we do know information. So I think it's really important to point out that horror really does need dramatic irony in order for the suspense to be effective. So I think we really need those moments when we know more stuff is going on than the protagonist because that's why we're worried for them. That's why we're concerned. So even though we know more information Either, you know, how something's going to turn out, you know, say from a a framing story where they pull part of the ending of the story or a turning point to the front or other information because we've been in an alternate point of view from the protagonist, we're still driven to stay with the story because we are emotionally invested in the outcome. We're concerned. So we're wondering, you know, how did things turn out that way, this way that maybe we already know how it goes, or what will happen when the protagonist finds out X, this thing that we already know. So either way, we're still invested to the point where we're we're concerned and we want to stick with the story to figure out how things will turn out once they know that or how things got to be the way that they did. So I just thought it was really interesting that, you know, a horror story feels like it still really does need elements of dramatic irony in order for the suspense to work. So we we need that bouncing back and forth. Just straight suspense doesn't feel like it would be as effective in a horror story as ensuring we have those layers of dramatic irony going on so that we can really feel true concern and fear for our protagonists, something that they can't experience themselves because they don't have all the information. So the opening scene, that teaser scene that Valerie mentioned, I was really interested at looking at the micro levels because it was really, it came out really clear to me as I was watching how it was shifting on these micro levels from the global story, the series, the scene, or even the beat. So in this opening sequence, you know, it starts out as suspense. We're just hanging out with Andre as he's walking down the street trying to figure out how to get to this house. And then we, we know that the car is following Andre and, and he knows it and he turns around and he's like, nope, not today. He's going the other way. And then we shift to mystery. You know, who is this guy in the weird night helmet? And that person clearly knows who who they are and what they're doing, but we don't. And why is he attacking Andre? And is Andre dead or alive? I wasn't really sure there for a while. And then the entire scene is shifted to a place of dramatic irony from the context of the rest of the story. And as Valerie mentioned, this happens throughout the film. We're weaving these micro elements in on the scene level to the sequences and how they're setting up the macro story of what's to come by shifting between those varying um, aspects of narrative drive. And then exactly as Anne explained, that silent auction, man, it was just an amazing example of, of this you know, it becomes this huge dramatic irony for the audience. And there was another couple moments of dramatic irony that I noticed 
So Chris was headed outside to have a smoke. And in the background, we see Georgina walk by. And I'm pretty sure they added some creepy music to surprise the audience with it a little bit. But Chris doesn't know that she's there walking through the house. And it, it just adds these extra elements of creepy. There was a distinct moment of mystery when Chris picks up the bocce ball to take out Jeremy, I'm wondering how the heck is he still awake? And then they reveal it to us that he has stuffed cotton in his ears from the chair. And that moment when he's staring so intensely at that stuffing coming out, I was really distracted because all I could think of was that's a brown skinned chair full of white stuffing. And then there's a stuffed deer on the wall staring right at him. And I just didn't anticipate him plugging his ears at all. I was just caught up in the symbolism of it all and the metaphor because I'm still on, you know, a symbolism high from our Wizard of Oz episode. So. And that was just a brilliant use of misdirection, which I'm starting to think might be a component, Valerie, that you should be adding to your collection of things to think about with the little buddy of suspense, aka surprise. I will absolutely <laughs> add that. And just while we're talking about that, that was it was it was a brilliant thing that Peel had the character do there. And of course, the sim it is symbolic, Kim. You are absolutely right to do that. In this story, the picking of cotton has saved the slave from being sold. Right? That was very intentional. That was- so strong. Yeah. Oh, man. So, you know, don't think that horror is necessarily two dimensional. <laughs> so, I wanted to address the difference between McKee suspense um, that we've talked about and Hitchcock suspense. The term suspense is kind of frustrating because, like genre, it gets used a lot in a lot of different contexts and it means something different to different people each time. When McKee is referring to suspense, he means this definition that we're talking about where we have the same amount of information as the reader. But when Hitchcock is talking about suspense, he means tension. It's like the angst that we feel when there is conflict in a scene. So I watched some videos about Hitchcock and suspense versus surprise even. And I'll put a link to a couple of those videos in the show notes. When Hitchcock is discussing the difference between suspense and surprise, again, he's referring to suspense as that drawn out tension in a scene and surprise as that sudden moment with no buildup. And it's interesting because when he gives the example in the video, he uses dramatic irony to create this suspense, this tension. The example is there is an actress uh, in the shower and she's washing and, and whatnot. And there is a shadow on the other side of the curtain and she's totally oblivious. She's just, you know, showering and the shadow approaches the curtain. And so we know that there's someone in the room. Again, she's turned away. She doesn't see it. And then we see them lift the knife. We see the knife shadow. And then, you know, they pull the curtain back and then she's now caught up with us and she knows that someone's there. And so he's creating this tension of the oblivious character and it was just interesting to me to see how he was using dramatic irony to create this, what he's calling suspense, which is just this level of tension, and how it works in a horror story or any version of those, depending on where you're at on the spectrum. So it seems to me that surprise is an element that can relate to any one of the three forms of narrative derived, mystery, suspense, or dramatic irony. So in mystery, it's that example of when Chris pulls the cotton out of his ears, you know, or when he picks up the bocce ball, we're like, wait, what's going on? And then we're surprised when he pulls the cotton out of his ears. So it seems like in that way, the mystery is the setup for the surprise. In suspense, it feels very much like the deer. We're just driving along the road and the deer hits the car and it is a jump scare. So that is where a, a surprise is aligned with suspense. And then in dramatic irony, in the Hitchcock example, we know that someone's there and someone wants to hurt her. And then, you know, let's just say hypothetically when she pulls the curtain that it's someone that we didn't suspect. My point here is that I would argue that surprise isn't the little buddy of suspense, but surprise is an element that you can weave in to heighten any one of the three narrative drive elements. It certainly seems that often the creepiest and scariest moments are not created from pure suspense, but are from this intentional placement of all three of these, you know, mystery with suspense, with dramatic irony that oscillate our levels of curiosity and concern. And I honestly, I think that's why Get Out works so well. It's not because it relies on suspense, but it's because Jordan Peele really knew how to use the other elements, you know, the dramatic irony and the mystery 
So just so much wonderful innovation happening in this film and in the story. And I'm just thrilled that you chose it, Valerie, because with Jari, I was freaked out to see it because I can't do horror either. And this one, I mean, it's disturbing beyond anything I've ever seen, but not horror in the way that the images are so horrifically graphic that I can't get them out of my mind. So I was delighted to have enjoyed it so much. And I have to just say, Valerie, I don't know what it is with you picking these stories that are ones I've been kind of like freaked out and avoiding to watch, like Manchester by the Sea and Get Out. But in the end, I'm so grateful because I've just learned so much from these, well, from these stories. You weren't freaked out by Waking Ned Divine. No, I wasn't. That was a that was a light <laughs> that crazy was, story. That one was really scary for me. <laughs> This is no Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th. Right. But almost worse in so many ways, right? Which I know is going to tie right into what Leslie has to say. So, Leslie, teach us, <laughs> <Yeah>. would you? <laughs> you make a really great point, Kim, that Jordan Peele in this story is just it, the height of intention. The way that he has woven the different um, methods of narrative drive together is a work of art, as they say. But I wanted to talk about some other things because there are some other really cool things happening in this film. We have a different, a very different idea of damnation than than we're used to. One of the things that I was thinking about in watching the film is what a, a level of damnation, like what if Rose and Chris end up going on and getting married and he has to deal with family events and, and that kind of thing. Like that's a whole level of damnation that is not contemplated necessarily by the film, but was really interesting. So one of the things I wanted to look at is the controlling idea or theme that, that I see within the story. And that is that life is preserved when the protagonist outwits societal monsters by looking beneath the veneer of polite society, no matter how awful the truth, to discover and exploit the monster's weakness. And Jordan Peele has talked a lot about social thrillers where the monster or the force of antagonism is really society. And this can happen within a lot of different genres. So we have it within noir, we have it within internal genres, certainly, and horror. And a lot of it, to me, feels like the conspiracy plot that we talk about in action stories, though those plots can appear in other stories as well. So we have a kind of invisible tyrant who's the villain in those stories. And I feel like we've already talked about some of the symbolism in this story where we are speaking to audience members at different levels of awareness or woke as Jordan Peele talks about it. And that, you can enjoy it on the level of literal action, of course. But if you watch the movie more often, or if you're just kind of tuned into some of the clues and the Easter eggs and the just deep social symbols, then you get a much higher level of enjoyment. And that is just really stellar storytelling to be able to speak to different audience members by being very specific and being very intentional about the items that you include in the story. I think that the style and the mood combination of the story where we, we're managing to, because a claustrophobic setting is, is a convention of the horror story, but we are we have the open air and sunshine. We have these high ceilinged rooms and in this expansive suburban home. But really, we get the feel that he, Chris is stuck. And it's just really brilliantly done. The humor has also been mentioned already, but this shifting between the creepiness and the humor, I saw that one writer commented about this story that the ending payoff revelations are cathartic because of the deep creepiness. So the funny, you know, that we get at the very end in the in the ending that was ultimately chosen for the story gave us this like, oh, like relief because We've been 
in the creepy so long. And of course, we have those moments of humor along the way to release tension and again, allows different people to enjoy the film. I think another thing, you know, and kind of along the lines of the of this as a social thriller where society is the monster, that we really get the deep discomfort of being isolated even though you're in a crowd of people and combine that with the gaslighting that we experience where people say one thing, right, that, oh, I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could have, and how that is really different, obviously, from what people do in real life, the actions they take. And so those shapeshifters that we see in life, particularly around, I think, race and other social issues, because people are uncomfortable. People don't want to be seen as being prejudiced, but they actually do, and they aren't willing to or able to face that and really discuss it and and change. There's a great quote from Jordan Peele that the best and scariest monsters in the world are human beings and that we are capable of, especially when we are together. I've been working on these premises about these different social demons, these innately human monsters that are woven into the fabric of how we think and how we interact. And each one of my movies is going to be about a different one of these social demons. So I'm really looking forward to more stories from Jordan Peele and how he's going to explore and weave this element into those stories. And for me, the biggest takeaway from Get Out is that a story like this doesn't happen by accident. From the commentary in particular, but just from watching the film and then combined with the commentary, we know that Jordan Peele understood the message that he was trying to convey. So he was very clear on his intention. He reviewed lots of masterworks and included homage and nods to those within the film. He innovated on the conventions and obligatory scenes of the horror genre, and he made very deliberate choices about the details within the story. And that is how you tell a really amazing story that has staying power and really speaks to lots of people. Wow. Well put. Well put. So, Valerie and Anne, how about some closing remarks? Since it seems like everyone kind of liked this movie, even though we didn't want to like it or... More importantly, I didn't want to watch it because I was thought I would be too scared. But what do you think? How do you want to wrap it up? I think something that we need to remember when we, as writers, want to analyze stories for narrative drive, when this is something we want to study and look at. The key is that, and, and Anne has stated this, I'm just restating it because it's really that important. Narrative drive and point of view are linked. And here's what I mean by that. Let's take the teaser as an example. And Kim went through it and showed us how it could be seen as suspense or mystery or, or dramatic irony. And it depends on whose point of view you look, you analyze that scene from. If you're in Andre's shoes analyzing that scene, it's suspense because we don't know what's going on. But if you analyze it from Chris's point of view, from the protagonist's point of view, it's dramatic irony because the audience now has a piece of information that Chris doesn't have. And the reason I'm reiterating this point is because you can really get confused really fast, <laughs> like really fast <laughs> when you're analyzing a story and you start thinking, well, hang on now, who's, who's put, what the heck? I can see it as being mystery or dramatic, blah, blah, blah. And you start to spiral like the scene from Psycho. Well, yeah, if you look at it from the victim's point of view, it's dramatic irony. But if you look at it from the killer's point of view, and the killers are our protagonist, right? If I'm remembering the story, right? It's suspense because we know everything that the, the character knows. So my recommendation, and this is how I'm moving forward because I'm new at analyzing this as well. At least my first crack at analyzing a story in terms of narrative drive will be from the protagonist's point of view. Because you have to have something, some unifying link as you go through the story, just to keep you from getting completely confused. Then you can go back in and look at certain scenes and see 
see it from different points of view, see it from different angles, really analyze scenes or sequences and see how they affect the overall story. But as a first crack, I would stay with the protagonist. Okay. The other thing I wanted to say is I think it's important for us to take a a little look at Rose's reveal. And Kim touched on this briefly, and I, I think we can spend another minute or two talking about it. So we're led to believe all the way through that Rose is in Chris's corner. Her reveal is surprising, but inevitable. And as soon as we find out about it, you know, our minds spiral back over the story to to see what are the clues that we didn't pick up on. We remember the scene with the cop where it seems like she's defending Chris in saying that, no, you didn't do anything wrong. You, You don't have to hand over your ID. But in hindsight, we realize that one, she knows exactly what, she knows the law really well. And she's awfully cool, cooler than most of us would be probably in that sort of situation. But more importantly, she doesn't want the authorities to know who Chris is and to know that he's there because she knows he's going to go missing and she doesn't want any record of him having been in the area or definitely not with her. And then think about the party scene where Rose is introducing him around to the guests. It seems innocent enough. She's bringing him around to the guests to introduce her boyfriend to her parents' friends. It's making small talk and so forth, just getting through this party with Chris in hindsight, we realize she's actually got him on display so that they can evaluate him and decide whether they want to bid on him for the auction. It's horrifying. I mean, this is horrifying. It's not gruesome. It's not blood and guts horrifying. This is psychological horror, which is just way worse, in my opinion. Okay, the last thing I wanted to talk about was the alternate ending. And I don't mean, you know, sort of the false ending and the real ending that we usually have in um, in certain genres. I mean, in this story, there literally were two endings. The original script had a version where the police come and they find Chris, they pick him up, he is wrongfully convicted and goes to jail. In the ending that was released, Rod finds him, and it's sort of a humorous ending. And I think he says, I told you not to go there, or something like that. Now, when I first watched the movie, this ending didn't seem to fit. It seemed a little weird, and I thought... Well, all right. But by then I was just so exhausted. I thought, okay, we'll just, we'll just go with it. When I did a little research, I discovered why there's, there were two endings. And actually the, the original ending is at the end of the credits. If um, you rented this movie and wanted to stay to the end of the credits, you can actually see it there. Here's the reason. Uh, Jordan Peele wrote the script during the Obama era, but the film was released during the Trump era. And he felt that the cautionary tale, the down ending of having Chris arrested and sent to prison was just too dark, that society couldn't handle it. It was too real. He felt that by the time it was released in 2017, what the readers or what the viewers needed was hope. They needed a hero. And so, yes, the ending actually is rushed because they kind of did it on a fly, on the fly. And if you look at the scenes, the, you know, the deleted scenes and the the DVD extras, you can see that the sun was actually coming up and they had to fix that in post. So it is rushed. Absolutely. And they had the guy who plays Rod just ad lib a bunch of lines and they used the one that they thought was the funniest, uh, just so that there would be some hope. So the horror, it would just be too horrifying. It's horrifying enough, but if they'd ended with the original ending, it would have been just more than people could handle in this climate. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, thanks everyone. And so to wrap up this episode, we are going to take a listener question. This week's question comes to us from Reed Bracken. Reed writes, during my story, can I get inside the head of more than one character using third person narration? Not head hopping in a scene, but just get into the heads of two to three characters. Only one character per scene, as long as it drives the story. I got the impression you thought I could only get into the main character's head through my whole story. Well, I'll take this because Reed is a client of mine. The short answer is yes, you can get inside the head of more than one character. The slightly less short answer is that your choice of whose point of view to use in a given scene is going to determine or at least figure strongly in your narrative device, as we've been talking about throughout this episode. So switch point of view if it serves your story. But a rule of thumb is not to switch within a scene. But honestly, I've seen that rule effectively broken. 
especially in older novels, like from the Victorian era, but don't do it yourself unless you're a hundred percent sure of what you're doing. So remember too, that a strict close point of view, that is one that puts us right inside a character's mind and feelings where we see what they see and hear what they hear makes us sympathize with that character. So if you're going to set the reader up with that kind of sympathy, be sure you pay it off by making sure that the, this point of view character plays a strong role in the story. Thanks, Anne. If you have a question about narrative drive or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to StoryGrid.com resources, clicking on the Editor Roundtable podcast, and why not leave us a voice message? Well, that wraps it up for this week. Great discussion, everyone. Thank you, Anne, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie for excellent editorial insights into Get Out. We hope that our discussion has given you a better grasp how to incorporate narrative drive, especially suspense, into your own stories. You can find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com slash editing. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. Again, if you'd like to support the show, tell a writer friend, or better yet, do a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. We really appreciate it, and we do read every review. So join us next time when we find out whether Kim can make the case for the 2011 movie version of Jane Eyre as a great example of a framing story as narrative to vice to raise the stakes and create pacing. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. I learned a lot in this one, you guys. Great. That's so fantastic.